Chapter 2 Commencement of Jihad by the Sword and Fundamental Discussion on Jihad Commencement of Jihad by the Sword Now we are entering into the second year of migration. We now enter the era of Islamic history in which war between the disbelievers and Muslims commenced. The issue of Jihad by the Sword, on account of which the swords of the Muslims were unsheathed, despite actually being a very straightforward and simple issue, has become very confused. Unfortunately, this is due to the contradictory notions which have been expressed by Muslims themselves in this regard. Furthermore, the writings of various non-Muslim historians, which they have written not in their capacity as historians, but as prejudiced religious critics, have also contributed to the confusion. It is alleged that Islam was initially nurtured under the shadow of the sword, which was raised against every such individual who refused to accept Islam, and that it was made a religious obligation upon Muslims to convert people to Islam by force of the sword. How far off is this notion from the truth? And how contradictory is it to authentic historical account? The answers to this shall be provided in the following pages. The truth is that in this early period, the actions of the Holy Prophet wasallam and his companions were solely in security and self-defense, and evidence and support of this shall be provided ahead. Moreover, these measures were only undertaken when the Quraysh of Mecca and upon their instigation. The hostile designs of the other Arabian tribes had reached such an extent that remaining silent in response and refraining from physical action was equivalent to suicide for the Muslims. No sensible individual can deem this as being worthy of praise. Then the various measures employed by the Holy Prophet ﷺ in this defensive war were not only perfectly permissible and correct in light of prevalent events, rather the standard of the code of conduct in war as established by the Holy Prophet ﷺ, is an excellent model for the world even today. As such, further inclination towards severity and punishment would have been at odds with justice, whereas a course of mercy and leniency would have proven to be a lethal poison for world peace. In truth, the claim of Islam is that it is a religion which appeals to human nature. Therefore, it does not prescribe a punishment in all circumstances for every sin and every crime, nor does it teach that evil should never be repelled, because both of these teachings are in extreme odds. Acting upon such extreme teachings can never establish peace, nor can the morality of nations and individuals be reformed. Hence, the most perfect and equitable teaching is, the recompense of an injury or crime should be one which is most appropriate. If, however, forgiveness brings about reformation, then one should forgive. A person who forgives in this manner shall be worthy of reward from Allah. Does Islam permit compulsion in the matter of religion? Prior to analyzing the early wars of Islam, it is incumbent upon us to first study the teachings presented by Islam regarding the compulsion in religious matters. In other words, is it permissible in light of Islamic teachings that people should be converted to Islam by force and then Islam be propagated by the sword? If Islam permits compulsion, then undoubtedly the issue would become dubious. In this case, the possibility would exist that perhaps the early wars of Islam were also fought for the purpose purpose of converting people to Islam by force. However, if it is proven that in light of the Islamic teaching compulsion is prohibited, this would be a powerful argument to substantiate that these early wars of Islam were not for the purpose of converting people to Islam by force, rather there were other reasons for them. 
For it is not possible in the least, nor can any sensible individual accept that the Holy Prophet ﷺ himself and his companions could have acted so openly against that teaching, which they conveyed to the people in name of God, and upon which their national identity was based. Now, when we cast a glance upon the Holy Qur'an, we find clear injunctions against propagation by force. Allah the Exalted states, O Messenger, and say to the people that Islam is the truth from your Lord, wherefore let him who will believe, and let him who will disbelieve. Then he states, O Messenger, say to the people that now has the truth come to you from your Lord. So whosoever accepts the guidance, follows it only for the good of his own soul, soul, and whoever treads the wrong path, the consequence thereof would also befall him, and I am not a keeper over you. Then he states, there should be no compulsion in the matter of religion. Right has become distinct from wrong. Whosoever abandons misguidance and believes in Allah, it shall be as if he has grasped a strong handle which knows no breaking, and Allah is all hearing, all knowing. In practical elaboration of this Quranic verse, there is a hadith as follows. When the Banu Nadir were exiled from Medina, the children of the Ansar were also among them. The Ansar desired to keep them, but the Holy Prophet ﷺ forbade them from doing so due to the Quranic verse, there shall be no compulsion in religion. Then there is a narration related by Datik, the Roman from the Khalafat of Hazrat Umar, Datik narrates, In the Khilafat of Hazrat Umar, I was his slave. He would often persuade me to become a Muslim, but I would refuse and Hazrat Umar would say, There is no compulsion in religion. Then he would remain silent. Thereafter, when the time of his demise drew near, Hazrat Umar freed me and said, Now you may go wherever you desire. Then God the Exalted says, O Messenger, and say to those who have been given the book and to the unlearned, Do you submit? If then they submit, then know that they have been guided. But if they reject your message, then your duty is only to convey the message. And Allah is watchful over His servants. These verses of the Holy Quran, which I have presented according to the chronological order of their revelation, are a conclusive proof that in light of the Islamic teaching, compulsion in the matter of religion is not permissible. Rather, Islam has left the issue of religion to the conscience of every individual, in that every individual may choose to follow whichever religion one so desires. From among the verses just mentioned, the verse of Surah Al-Qaf is from the Makkan era. Some scholars are of the opinion that the verse of Surah Yunus is from the last days of the Makkan era, whereas others believe it to be from the Medanite era. The verse of Surah Baqarah is from the initial years in Medina when the wars of Islam had begun. The verse of Surah Al-Imran is from the latter period in Medina when Makkah and Taif had been conquered and the wars of Arabia had nearly come to a close. As such, these different verses were revealed in diverse eras during the life of the Holy Prophet. The last verse was revealed close to the demise of the Holy Prophet. All of these verses conclusively and definitely establish the prohibition of forceful propagation and allude to the task of the Prophet inasmuch that he should openly convey his teaching to the people. Thereafter, to accept or not to accept is the prerogative of people themselves. Now in the presence of this clear and lucid teaching, which was loudly announced to the people day in and day out, and to which disbelievers were invited, is it possible for the Holy Prophet and his companions to set out sword 
open hand so as to forcefully convert people to Islam? In this case, would the disbelievers not object saying that you preach a so-called divine word which speaks against compulsion, yet practice coercion yourselves? Yet history proves that this allegation was never raised by the disbelievers, despite their habitual tendency to level allegations against the Holy Prophet without holding back. A multitude of allegations have been recorded in the Holy Quran, books of Hadith and history. State of Muslims at the commencement of Jihad refutes the notion of compulsion. Then we see that when Jihad was initiated by the Muslims, their state at the time also refutes the notion of compulsion. Is it possible for a war of compulsion to be waged by a mere handful of people against whom the entire country was armed and who could barely sleep at night due to fear? In such a state of affairs, only such a person can set out to fight who either believes that now the only means to avert death is to take up the sword in self-defense or if he believes that now death is inevitable either way. So why not die in the field of battle like men? An individual who is not mad cannot set out to fight for any other purpose except for the two just mentioned, in such conditions as were prevalent among the Muslims at that time. This is proof of the fact that the early wars of Islam were in security and self-defense, not for the purpose of compulsion and terrorism. No individual has ever been coerced to become a Muslim. Then it should also be remembered that in these wars of the Holy Prophet and his companions were for the purpose of converting people to Islam by force, then we should be able to find examples of such people who converted to Islam by force. After all, history has recorded the names of thousands of Muslims and disbelievers. In the very least, there should be an example of one such person who was compelled to accept Islam at the dint of a sword. The fact is that not only a single example of forceful propagation can be found in history. On the contrary, however, history does affirm such examples where an idolater expressed his acceptance of Islam in the very course of fighting, but the Muslim did not consider his declaration of Islam to be true. They finished him off with the thought that his proclamation of Islam was due to fear, and that his expression of Islam was not accompanied by the affirmation of his heart. As such, historical record proves that that once Osama bin Zaid, who was the son of Zaid bin Haritha, the freed slave of the Holy Prophet, was very dear to him, encountered a disbeliever in war. When the disbeliever saw that Osama had subdued him, he said, I become a Muslim. However, Osama did not care for this and speared him. After the war, when this account was related to the Holy Prophet, he became extremely displeased with Osama and said, Why did you kill a man who professed his acceptance of Islam? O Messenger of Allah, he did so out of fear and was not a Muslim at heart, was the response of Osama. The Holy Prophet said, Did you cut open his heart to affirm this? In other words, it is completely plausible that the truth of Islam was revealed to him at that very instance and he became a Muslim at heart. For example, it is possible that in his heart the criteria of judgment he may have set was that if he become victorious in this war, then it is evident that their idols that he is fighting for are truthful. If, however, he is defeated, then it would be evident that God is one. In any case, his acceptance of Islam in the very field of battle was not conclusive evidence of the fact that he had become a Muslim due to fear. Therefore, when the possibility existed after his acceptance was sincere, 
Osama should have restrained his hand, and this is why the Holy Prophet was so displeased with him. Osama relates that the Holy Prophet was so displeased with me that he desired, Oh, would that I had not become a Muslim prior to this occurrence. If I had become Muslim after this occurrence, I would not have been made to bear this displeasure of the Holy Prophet Then, such examples can also be found in history that if the Holy Prophet ever happened to discover himself that an individual had not become Muslim at heart and his acceptance was merely due to fear or greed, he would not accept his declaration of Islam. As such, there is a narration in Sahih Muslim that during a war, the companions imprisoned a disbeliever who was from among the allies of the Banu Taqif. When the Holy Prophet passed by this prisoner in the thought that he would be set free, he said, O Muhammad, why am I kept in prison when I accept Islam? The Holy Prophet responded, If you had come to Islam prior to this, it would have been accepted by Allah, and you would have attained salvation, but not now. After this, the Holy Prophet had two Muslim prisoners released from the Banu Taqif and returned him to the disbelievers. Therefore, not a single example can be found in history where the companions made a person Muslim by threat of the sword. Rather, all the examples which are found indicate the opposite, and this is practical evidence that these wars of the Muslims were not for the purpose of converting people to Islam by force. At this instance, if anyone holds a reservation releasing a disbeliever during war only upon his acceptance of Islam is also a sort of compulsion, then this would be an ignorant allegation. To abstain from fighting when the grounds of dispute cease to exist is known as morality and benevolence, not compulsion and cruelty. The only grounds upon which the Holy Prophet fought against the disbelievers of Arabia was because they took up the sword against the Holy Prophet and desired to stop the peaceful propagation of Islam by force. In contrast, the Holy Prophet desired to establish peace and religious freedom in the land. Now, if an individual becomes Muslim, irrespective of whether his heart is open to Islam while sitting at home or in the battlefield. Whenever he accepts Islam, in the least, his expression to that effect would surely indicate that now such a person ceases to pose the threat to the initial cause of battle. In this case, therefore, action against such a person would definitely be brought to a halt. In actuality, as shall become evident ahead, war was initiated by the disbelievers. Hence, when an individual became a Muslim, this naturally inferred that such a person had now abstained from war and had inclined towards reconciliation. Hence, war against such a person was brought to a halt. The purport of the following hadith of the Holy Prophet is also the same where he states, I have been ordered to fight those disbelievers who have entered the field of battle against Islam. However, various people have misunderstood this hadith to infer that the Holy Prophet had been ordered to fight against all the disbelievers of the world until they became Muslim. However, this inference clearly contradicts the Quranic teaching and historical accounts. Furthermore, it would be an utterly dishonest act to ignore that meaning of a statement of the Holy Prophet, which concurs with the Holy Quran and history, and no objection can be leveled against it in terms of the Arabic language itself. For a meaning which is completely at odds with a clear 
Quranic teaching and evident historical accounts. Hence, the purport of the statement of the Holy Prophet is that he has been ordered to fight those disbelievers who had taken up the sword against the Muslims and were becoming a disruption to the national peace. If, however, they were to become Muslim and no longer pose a threat, then he had been instructed to stop fighting. In other words, he had been ordered to fight until the natural outcome of war manifests itself i.e. those people who have stood up against Islam are either defeated and war comes to an end or until they become convinced of the truth of Islam and become Muslim after which no risk of unrest or their account remains. Further evidence of this is that war was not only stopped upon the acceptance of Islam, rather if a tribe would discontinue war against the Muslims and submit to their political rule, even if it remained fixed upon disbelief and polytheism, war would be ceased against it. Hence, there are many such examples recorded in history which shall be presented at the appropriate place. Therefore, to desist from fighting upon the acceptance of Islam has no relation relation to coercion whatsoever. Quite the contrary, this is an act of good governance, which should be worthy of praise in the eyes of every sensible individual. The explanation of this hadith, which has just been presented, is not merely a logical one. Rather, the Holy Quran itself very clearly presents the teaching that if the disbelievers refrain from their cruelties and do not cause disorder and unrest in the land, then in this case, Muslims should immediately cease military activity against them. As such, the Holy Quran states, O Muslims, fight those disbelievers who fight against you until there is no persecution in the land, and every individual is able to profess whatever religion he so desires for the sake of Allah. But if these disbelievers abstain from their cruelties, should also stand back, because you do not have the right to take military action except against the aggressors. An explanation of this verse is also found in the following hadith. With regards to the statement of Allah the Exalted, that you should fight those disbelievers who fight against you until there is no persecution in the land, Ibn Umar states that, In the era of the Holy Prophet, the Muslims were few in number and anyone who accepted Islam would be given grief in the way of religion. Some would be martyred until others would be taken prisoner. Thus, the manner in which we acted upon this divine command was to fight until the Muslims gained strength in number and power and new Muslims were saved from persecution. In the presence of this clear and lucid verse as well, as this clear and lucid hadith, it is not at all an act of honesty to interpret a hadith which may be constructed in different ways to substantiate a teaching of forceful propagation. Lives of the companions reject the notion of compulsion. Then there are certain signs of faith by which an individual is recognized, and they can never be instilled in a person who has been converted to Islam by force of the sword. For example, true faith possesses love. It possesses sincerity, it possesses sacrifice and indignation. It is impossible for these qualities to be found in an individual whose faith is merely a faith of display, and who expresses a certain belief merely due to fear, while the heart of such a person remains devoid of faith. Therefore, we should study the lives of the companions and then determine whether their state appears to be the like of such people whose religion has been altered by the might of the sword. 
Does their faith not possess the fragrance of love? Do their hearts appear to be devoid of sincerity? Did they not possess the spirit of sacrifice? Does it seem as if there is a lack of indignation within them? If this is not the case, and indeed it is not, and all of these signs exist within the companions, and not only that, but exist to an exceptional standard and every achievement of their lives, is a testimony to their faith, sincerity, love of Islam, sacrifice, and indignation. How great an injustice would it be to doubt the truthfulness of their faith. Do not go far. Take the example of Ikrama bin Abi Jahal. His father, Abu Jahal, was thirsty for the blood of the Holy Prophet and perished in this very pursuit. Even the state of Ikrama himself was such that he fought against the Holy Prophet in every way and exerted all his efforts to wipe out Islam. Eventually, at the occasion of the victory of Makkah, he fled from Mecca, considering subservience to the Holy Prophet as being a cause for humiliation. Historians write that he was among those people whom the Holy Prophet had ordered to be executed. However, when he finally became Muslim, the state of his faith and sincerity was such that in the reign of Hajj Abu Bakr, he exhibited unparalleled sacrifices in order to uproot the rebels. During a war, when an occasion of brutal carnage ensued, and people were being slaughtered as though grass being cut Ikrama took a few companions and leaped into the heart of the army. Various people attempted to hold him back, saying, Right now, the war has taken a dangerous turn. It is not wise to enter the enemy ranks in this manner. But Ikrama did not stand down. He would move forward, saying, I fought against Muhammad for the sake of Lat and Uzzah. Today I shall not stand back from fighting in the way of God. At the completion of battle, his corpse was found severely pierced by spears and swords wounds. His financial sacrifices were such that when Akrama would receive a portion from the spoils of war, he would readily spend it on charity, alms, and the service of faith. He would often say that there was a time when I would spend in opposition to the religion of God, but now I am not put to ease until I spend in his cause. Are these the people who were converted to Islam by fear of the sword? Desire of the Holy Prophet to reconcile rejects the notion of compulsion. Another proof that these wars of the Holy Prophet were not for the purpose of converting people to Islam by force is that he would always desire the reconciliation. The utmost effort of the Holy Prophet would be to somehow bring these wars to an end so that a state of peace and security could be brought about in the land. As such, history proves that upon the occasion of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Quraysh stipulated that the most severest of terms, to the extent that a majority of the Muslims considered the acceptance of these conditions to be a disgrace upon themselves. However, the Holy Prophet ﷺ was not bothered by any of this, and as the Quraysh demanded, he accepted their conditions and came to a truce. Now this is an instance which calls for the contemplation, for if the purpose of the Holy Prophet and these wars was to convert the disbelievers to Islam by the dint of the sword, the state of affairs would have been different. The Quraysh would have pressed for reconciliation and proposed such soft conditions as would be happily accepted by the Muslims. The Holy Prophet would have in turn followed a course of rigidity and made excuses to avoid a proposal of reconciliation, continuing to spur on war, so that an opportunity for the forceful conversion of disbelievers to Islam would remain available. However, at this instance, the matter appears to have been the opposite. This conclusively proves that the heartfelt desire of the Holy Prophet was that by some means this war should be stopped and a prospect of peace and security
security should prevail throughout the land. Furthermore, the Quranic verse which was revealed on this occasion is also proof that the objective of the Holy Prophet in these wars was not forceful propagation, rather the establishment of peace. As such, a narration Bukhari states that the following Quranic verse was revealed at the occasion of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. We have granted you a manifest victory. In other words, Allah the Exalted has referred to reconciliation and the establishment of peace as a manifest victory for the Muslims. In truth, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was such an extraordinary, magnificent victory that in a way the Battle of Badr and the Battle of the Ditch equate to nothing. The reason being that although the disbelievers were defeated and put to flight at the Battle of Badr and the Battle of the Ditch, the Muslims did not attain the objective of their jihad in these wars because the disbelievers were still in conflict just as before and war continued. However, at Hudaybiyah, although there was no massacre and carnage and apparently the Muslims were made to give in to this treaty, but the purpose of their jihad was ultimately attained. In other words, war was ceased and peace was established in the land. Hence, the Treaty of Hadabiyah was a true victory, and it's for this reason that Allah has referred to it as a manifest victory. This is a remarkably outstanding proof that the wars of the Muslims were either defensive or for the establishment of peace, and not for the purpose of spreading Islam by force. Muslims achieved exceptional progress during a time of peace. This question may be analyzed from another perspective as well, and that is to determine whether Islam achieved more progress during a time of peace or in a time of war. If it is proven that in comparison to wartime, Islam progressed at an extraordinary speed during a time of peace, this would furnish practical evidence to substantiate that the wars of Islam were not for the purpose of forceful propagation. History identifies that war practically began in the second year of migration. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah took place in the sixth year of migration. In other words, prior to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Muslims underwent a five-year period of war. The number of Muslims in the span of these five years can be estimated by the number of warriors who participated in these wars on behalf of the Muslim army. War was announced in Safar 2 AH, and the first battle of the Muslims against the Quraysh took place in Ramadan 2 AH, at the occasion of Badr, where the Muslims numbered just over 300. The second battle took place in Shawal 3 AH, at the occasion of Uhud, where the Muslims were 700 in number. The third battle was in Shawal 5 AH, which is known as the Ghazwa of the Confederates, or the Ghazwa of the Ditch. In this war, the Muslims were 3,000 in number. However, it should be remembered that since this battle took place in Medina, a larger number of Muslims were able to participate. For if this had been a distant journey, perhaps so many Muslims would not have been able to participate because of the weak, old, and destitute would have been left behind in large numbers. In any case, 3,000 Muslims participated in this war. After this, in Dukada 6 AH, the Ghazwa of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah took place, in which 1,500 Muslims participated. Thus, in the last Ghazwa of this four to five year period of war, the Muslim population went from 300 to 1,500. And if the number of the, at the Ghazwa of the ditch is made a basis, it can be said that this population touched 3,000. After this, an era of peace began, which lasted for approximately a year and three quarters. 
However, the astonishing speed at which Islam progressed in this era of peace can be discerned from the number of Muslims present at the Ghazwa of the victory of Makkah, which took place in Ramadan 8 AH. Historians agree that the number of the Muslim army in this Ghazwa comprised of 10,000 souls. Hence, in a four to five year period of war, the number of Muslims who were able to partake in jihad had reached 1,500, or at most 3,000, but in an era of peace spanning a year and three quarters, this number reached 10,000. This proves that these wars were not for the purpose of forceful propagation, rather they were actually a hindrance in the progress of Islam. The reason being that as soon as this war came to an end, Islam began to spread rapidly. In actuality, during a state of war, many people were unable to pay due attention to Islam. Many people of weaker dispositions feared the opposition of the disbelievers as well, and even Muslims themselves found very little opportunity for actual preaching due to their engagement in war. However, when war ceased, on the one hand, people received an opportunity to reflect upon Islam, and the fear of weaker dispositions was relieved. On the other hand, preaching efforts took on pace, and the result of this is before us. Hundreds of disbelievers remained averse to Islam at the victory of Mecca. Another proof of the fact that these wars of the Holy Prophet ﷺ were not for forceful propagation of Islam is the Ghazwa of Mecca. When Mecca was conquered at the hands of the Muslims and the Holy Prophet and his companions entered Mecca as victors at that time, although various people from the Quraysh remained firm in their disbelief and there was absolutely no hostility whatsoever towards them, Thereafter, as the hearts of people were gradually opened towards Islam, they continued to become Muslim at their own will. The numbers of such people was in the hundreds, rather perhaps ran into the thousands. As such, Safwan bin Umayyah, who is the son of Umayyah bin Khalf, a chieftain of the Quraysh, and was a staunch enemy of Islam, did not become a Muslim at the victory of Makkah either. It was in this very state of disbelief that he sided with the Holy Prophet and participated in the Ghazwa of Hunayn. Many other idolaters also took part in this war. However, gradually the truth of Islam began to manifest itself upon him due to the beautiful character of the Holy Prophet. And then, ultimately, he became a Muslim at his own will. Now the question is that if the Holy Prophet and his companions would forcefully convert people to Islam, why were people not coerced to enter Islam after the victory of Makkah, when the Quraysh had lost their strength completely and the Muslim army was dominant? After the victory of Makkah, what better opportunity could the Muslims have found for their forceful propagation, when a very large community could have been made to enter Islam with the slightest wave of the sword. However, Islam brought a message of religious freedom, and it was ordered that there should be no compulsion in the matter of religion. Therefore, it was with utmost honesty that the Holy Prophet and his companions left every single individual free to his own conscience, so that everyone could follow the religion of their choosing. However, Islam was not such a religion that if the idolaters of Arabia were to receive opportunity to calmly contemplate, they would not be won over by its qualities in comparison to their own religion. Hence, it was not the iron sword, but the sword of argumentation and signs, which did its work, and in the very short time, the region of Arabia was cleansed of the element of polytheism. Causes of War 
Now the question which arises relates to the circumstances and people against whom the Muslims were permitted to engage in a jihad of the sword, and what were its causes. In response to this question, we need not say anything of our own accord. The historical accounts are clear, and by studying them, an individual who possesses even the slightest insight can reach the correct conclusion, provided that his eyes are not covered by the veil of prejudice. First and foremost, in the Makkah life of the Holy Prophet, the cruelties which were inflicted upon the Muslims by the Quraysh and the schemes they employed in order to expunge Islam were enough reason for war to break out between any two nations in every era and in all types of circumstances. History substantiates that in addition to extremely degrading mockery and exceedingly offensive taunt and slander, the disbelievers of Makkah forcefully stopped the Muslims from worshipping the one God and announcing his unity. They were very brutal beaten and battered mercilessly. Their wealth was usurped unlawfully. They were boycotted in an attempt to kill and ruin them, while some were martyred ruthlessly and their women were dishonored. This was to the extent that, disturbed by these cruelties, many Muslims left Makkah and migrated to Abyssinia. However, the Quraysh did not rest at this either, and sent a delegation to the royal court of the Negus in an attempt that these Muhajirin would somehow return to Makkah and the Quraysh, would become successful in reverting them from their faith or eliminating them. Then great pains were inflicted upon the master and the leader of the Muslims, who was dearer to them than their own souls, and he was subjected to all kinds of suffering. Upon professing the name of God, the friends and comrades of the Quraysh bombarded the Holy Prophet with stones and taif, to the extent that his body became drenched in blood. Ultimately, with the agreement of all the representatives of the various tribes of the Quraysh, who decided that in the national parliament of Mecca, that Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah, be assassinated so that all traces of Islam may be wiped out and divine unity may be brought to an end. Then, in order to practically implement this bloody resolution, the youth of Makkah, who were from the various tribes of the Quraysh, assembled a group and attacked the home of the Holy Prophet by night. However, God protected the Holy Prophet, and he departed from his home, leaving them in the dust, and he took refuge in the cave of Thar. Were these cruelties and bloody resolutions not then equivalent to an announcement of war by the Quraysh? In the backdrop of these incidents, can any sensible individual assert that the Quraysh of Mecca were not at war with Islam and the Muslims? Then could these cruelties of the Quraysh not become sufficient grounds to warrant a defensive war by the Muslims? In such circumstances, could any honorable nation of the world, which has not resigned itself to suicide, stand back from the acceptance of such an ultimatum as was given to the Muslims by the Quraysh? Most definitely, if there was another nation in place of the Muslims, they would have entered the field of battle against the Quraysh much earlier. The Muslims, however, were ordered to exhibit patience and forgiveness by their master. As such, it is written that when the persecution of the Quraysh intensified, Abdur Rahim bin Auf and other companions presented themselves before the Holy Prophet and sought permission to fight the Quraysh. But the Holy Prophet wasallam, responded, For now, I have been ordered to pardon. Thus, I cannot give you permission to fight. As such, the companions bore every pain and insult in the way of religion. 
but did not go of the handle of patience. When the goblet of the persecution of the Quraysh had been satiated and began to overflow, and the God of this universe found the divine message to have been conveyed incontrovertibly, it was only then that God ordered his servant to leave the city. For now, the matter had exceeded the limit of forgiveness, and the time had come when the perpetrators would reach their evil end. Hence, this migration of the Holy Prophet was a sign of the acceptance of the ultimatum of the Quraysh. It was a subtle indication by God of the announcement of war. Both the Muslims and disbelievers understood this. As such, during the consultation of Darun Nadwa, when an individual proposed that the Holy Prophet should be exiled from Mecca, the chieftains of the Quraysh rejected this proposal on the basis that if Muhammad was to leave Mecca, the Muslims would definitely accept their ultimatum. And enter the field of battle in opposition to them. Upon the occasion of the second bath at Aqaba, when the question of the migration of the Holy Prophet arose before the Ansar of Medina, they immediately said, This entails that we should become prepared for war against the whole of Arabia. When the Holy Prophet left Mecca, he cast a sorrow-stricken glance upon the boundaries of Mecca and said, O Mecca, you were more beloved to me than all other cities, but your people have not allowed me to live here. Upon this, Hazrat Abu Bakr said, They have exiled the Messenger of God. Now they shall indeed be destroyed. In summary, until the Holy Prophet ﷺ resided in Mecca, he endured all kinds of torment, but did not take up the sword against the Quraysh. The reason being that firstly, before any measures could be taken against the Quraysh, according to the custom of Allah, the divine message needed to be conveyed incontrovertibly. And this called for respite. Secondly, it was also a desire of God that the Muslims exhibit a model of forgiveness and patience to that final limit whereafter remaining silent was equivalent to suicide, which cannot be deemed a commendable deed to any sensible individual. Thirdly, the Quraysh headed a kind of democratic government in Mecca and the Holy Prophet was one of its citizens. Hence, good citizenship demanded that until the Holy Prophet wasallam, remained in Mecca, he respect the authority and not allow anything as would disturb the peace and when the issue exceeds the limit of forgiveness, he migrate from there. Fourthly, it was also necessary that until his people had become deserving of punishment due to their actions in the estimation of God, until the time to destroy them had not arrived, the Holy Prophet lived among them. And when the time arrives, he migrates from there. The reason being that according to the custom of Allah, until a prophet of God remains within his people, they are not struck by a punishment as would destroy them. When a destructive punishment is impending, the Prophet is ordered to leave such a place. Due to this reason, the migration of the Holy Prophet possessed distinct indications within it, but it is unfortunate that these wrongdoing people did not recognize them and continued to grow in their tyranny and oppression. For if the Quraysh had abstained even now and had refrained from employing a course of compulsion in religion and had permitted the Muslims to live a life of peace, then God is the most merciful of those who are merciful. And his messenger was also Rahmatulil Alameen. Indeed, even then they would have been forgiven. However, the writings of divine decree were to be fulfilled. The migration of the Holy Prophet served as a fuel upon the fire of the Quraysh's enmity, and they stood up with an even greater zeal and uproar than before to obliterate Islam.
in addition to inflicting persecution and tyranny upon the poor and weak Muslims, who until now were still in Mecca, the first undertaking of the Quraysh, as soon as they found out that the Holy Prophet ﷺ had left Mecca, was that they set out to pursue him. They scanned every inch of the valley of Bakka in search of the Holy Prophet, and even reached the mouth of the cave of Thar. However, Allah the Exalted aided the Holy Prophet and placed such a veil upon the eyes of the Quraysh that after having reached the very place of destination, they returned frustrated and unsuccessful. When they became disappointed in the search, they made a public announcement that any individual who brought Muhammad back, dead or alive, would receive a bounty of a hundred camels, which is approximately equivalent to 20,000 rupees in today's currency. Many young men from the various tribes of the Quraysh set out in all directions to search for the Holy Prophet in greed of the bounty. As such, the pursuit of Suraka bin Malik, which has already been mentioned in volume 1 of this book, was also a result of this announcement of reward. However, the Quraysh were made to confront failure in this scheme as well. If one contemplates for war to break out between two nations, even this sole reason is enough, in that a bounty of this nature is set for the master and leader of the other. In any case, when the scheme also proved unsuccessful and the Quraysh found out that the Holy Prophet had reached Medina safe and sound, as it has been mentioned above, the chieftains of the Quraysh sent a terribly threatening letter to the head of chieftain of Medina, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul and his companions. You have given protection to an individual of ours, and we swear in the name of Allah that you shall either leave him and declare war against him, or in the least exile him from your city. If not, we shall most definitely gather our entire army and attack you, and we shall kill your men and take your women in to our own possession, making them lawful unto ourselves. The anxiety which could have clung to the poor muhajireen due to this letter is evident, but a tremor of fear also surged through the Ansar as well. When the Holy Prophet received news of this, he went to Abdullah bin Ubay himself. The Holy Prophet reasoned with him and calmed him down, saying, Your very own kith and kin are with me. Will you fight against your own love? ones. It was in these days that Sa'ad bin Mu'ad, chieftain of the Aus, came to Makkah for the purpose of Umrah. Upon seeing him, the eyes of Abu Jahal gorged with blood and rage, and he furiously said, You have given protection to that renegade Muhammad. Do you believe that you will be able to protect him? In this era, the Quraysh were so preoccupied in uprooting Islam that when Walid bin Mughira, a chief of Makkah, was about to die, he began to weep helplessly. The people inquired of his suffering, to which he responded, I fear lest the religion of Muhammad might spread after my death. The leaders of the Quraysh responded by saying, Do not worry, we guarantee that we shall not allow his religion to spread. All of these instances are subsequent to the migration, when the Holy Prophet left Mecca, distressed by the persecution of the Quraysh, and it could be thought that the Quraysh would leave the Muslims at their state. This was not at all. Rather, when the Quraysh noticed that the Aus and Khazraj refused to give up their protection of the Holy Prophet, and it was apprehended that Islam may take root in Medina, they toured the other tribes of Arabia and began to incite them against the Muslims.
Since the Quraysh enjoyed a distinct influence upon the other tribes of Arabia due to their guardianship of the Kaaba for this reason, upon the instigation of the Quraysh, many tribes had become deadly enemies of the Muslims. The state of Medina was as if it had become surrounded by a raging fire. As such, the following narration has been mentioned. Ubay bin Kaab, who was from among the most distinguished companions, narrates, When the Holy Prophet and his companions migrated to Medina, and the Ansar gave protection to them, in turn all of Arabia collectively stood up against the Muslims. In that era, Muslims would not even put off their arms at night, and during the day they would walk around armed in case of a sudden attack. They would say to each other, that let us see if we live till such a time, when we might be able to sleep in peace at night without any fear except the fear of God. The state of the chief of mankind himself was that in the beginning when the Holy Prophet arrived to Medina, he would often remain awake during the night in apprehension of enemy attack. With regards to the same era, the Holy Quran states, O ye Muslims, remember the time when you were few and were considered to be weak in the land and were in constant fear, lest people should snatch you away and destroy you. But God sheltered you and granted you support with his succor and opened the doors of pure provisions upon you. Therefore, you should now live as thankful servants. This was the state of external threats. And even in Medina, the state was that until now a substantial segment from among the Aus and Khazraj stood firm upon polytheism. Although they were apparently with their brethren and kindred, but in such circumstances, how could a polytheist be trusted? Secondly, were the hypocrites who at the outset had accepted Islam, but in secret they were enemies of Islam, and their presence in Medina posed threatening possibilities. Thirdly were the Jews, with whom, although there was a treaty, but to these Jews the value of this treaty was nothing. Hence, in this manner, there were such elements present, even in Medina itself, which were no less than a store of hidden ammunition against the Muslims. A tiny spark by the Arabian tribes were enough to set this ammunition on fire, and destroy the Muslims of Medina with a single blast. At this vulnerable time, which was such that a more critical time had never dawned upon the Muslims before, divine revelation was sent to the Holy Prophet, that now he should also take up the sword in opposition to the believers who had entered the field of battle against him sword in hand purely by way of injustice and tyranny in this manner jihad by the sword was announced at this time the number of such muslims who were able to fight was not more than a few hundred even from among these few hundred souls most of them suffered from a state of extreme weakness and poverty for some the matter reached the point of starvation every other day among them there were very few who could even make the very basic equipment of war available to themselves on the other hand the state of the opposing party was such that in terms of religion the entire country was without exception an enemy. Practically, in addition to the Quraysh as well, who were thousands in number, and were far more powerful than the Muslims in terms of wealth, property, and military supplies, many other Arabian tribes had become allies of the Quraysh. It was due to these threats that the Muslims could not sleep at night.
at such a vulnerable time the command of God was revealed that, O Muslims, now you shall also take up the sword against these disbelievers. There remains no doubt whatsoever with regard to the fundamental purpose of this jihad, because in such circumstances only such an individual can enter the field of battle who had decided upon one of two things, the first being that now my death is inevitable. Why not, therefore, give my life in the field of battle like men? Secondly, now if there's any possibility to avert death, then it is to take up the sword and enter the field of battle, and then come what may. The early battles of Muslims were due to this latter objective, but despite this divine command and coerced decision to fight, the state of many weak-hearted Muslims was that their hearts would sink at the thought of war. As such, the Holy Quran states, When jihad was prescribed for the Muslims, a section of them feared the disbelievers to the extent that this fear was greater than their fear of God. And these people would say, O oh our Lord, why have you prescribed jihad upon so soon? Would you not grant us respite yet a while? Then he states, O ye Muslims, we are aware that jihad of the sword has been ordained for you at a time when it is a difficult and burdensome task for you to bear. But remember, it may be that you consider a thing to be a means of difficulty for you while it is good for you, or it may be that you consider a thing to be good for you while it is bad for you. Undoubtedly, Allah knows all things and you know not. First Quranic Verse Regarding Jihad Historians write that the very first Quranic verse regarding jihad by the sword was revealed to the Holy Prophet wasallam on 12 Safar 2 AH or 15 August 623 AD when a period of approximately one year had elapsed since the arrival of the Holy Prophet to Medina. That verse is as follows. Permission to fight is granted to the Muslims against whom the disbelievers have taken up the sword because they have been wronged, and Allah indeed has power to help them. Those who have been driven out of their homes unjustly only because they said, Our Lord is Allah. And if Allah the Exalted did not repel some men by means of others by granting permission for a defensive war, there would surely have been pulled down cloisters belonging to monks and Christian churches and Jewish synagogues and mosques, wherein the name of God is oft commemorated. And Allah the Exalted will surely help one who helps him. Undoubtedly, Allah the Exalted is powerful, mighty. The clarity and lucidity with which these verses of the Holy Quran exhibit the fundamental purpose of the initial Islamic wars and the state of the Muslims at the time requires no explanation. If one contemplates, four things are evident from this verse. Firstly, in this war, it was the disbelievers who took the first step as is evident from the word. Secondly, that the disbelievers severely wronged the Muslims, and it was these very cruelties which were the cause of war, as has been mentioned. Thirdly, the purpose of the Quraysh was to annihilate the religion of Islam. Fourthly, the purpose of the Muslims announcing war was self-defense and protection. Therefore, this verse of the Holy Quran, which is the very first verse on jihad by the sword, states with extreme clarity that it was the disbelievers who had initiated these wars, and they desired to expunge Islam by force. It was the Muslims who had been wronged, and it was only in self-defense and protection that they took up the sword. 
I believe the sole verse to be a sufficient response to all those allegations which have been leveled by the opponents of Islam in relation to jihad by the sword, if only one chooses to understand. Holy Quran as the most authentic historical evidence. At this instance, the doubt may arise in someone's heart that as the Quran is a religious scripture of the Muslims themselves, how can its testimony be given such a rank so as to base such a significant historical account upon it? The response is that such a doubt can only arise in the heart of such a person who is completely ignorant of the science of history and Islamic literature. The standing of the Holy Quran is such that no other record of Islamic history possesses any value in comparison to it. In comparison to the Holy Quran, what weight could the narrations of Hadith in its history possibly possess, despite the extensive scrutiny of the Muhadithin and historians? This is not merely a biased claim, rather, it is a clear truth which has been accepted by both friend and foe. The fact is that here there, there is no question of a religious issue whereby a non-Muslim can reject the idea of the Quran, saying that he does not believe the Quranic teaching to be from God. Rather, on this occasion, it is a question of historical testimony. As such, it is accepted that the most authentic and genuine historical testimony is that which is from the era in which an occurrence has taken place. It is related by those people before whom the occurrence has taken place. It is put to writing immediately and then remains pure from all types of interpolation afterwards as well. The standard, therefore, which the Holy Quran enjoys in this respect is not at all enjoyed by any other book. The Holy Quran was not only put to writing in the era of the Holy Prophet, rather many Hufaz had preserved its every word in their minds as well. Thereafter, it has remained pure from every kind of interpolation to this day, and is present even today, in the exact form and condition as in the era of the Holy Prophet and companions. As this is an accepted fact, I do not wish to spend too much time on this discussion, otherwise I would have spoken about how very magnificent the status of the authenticity of the Holy Quran truly is, and how it is an insult to the truth of the present any other testimony in comparison to it. I present two testimonies merely by way of example, and even if they are such people who are critics of Islam. Sir William Muir, who was a famous English historian and whose book on the life of the Holy Prophet is perhaps most widely circulated among all Western literature on the subject, writes in his book, The Life of Muhammad, we may have the strongest presumption affirm that every verse in the Quran is the genuine and unaltered composition of Muhammad himself. Then he writes, To compare, as the Muslims are fond of doing, their pure text with the various readings of the scriptures is to compare things between the history and essential points of which there is no analogy. Then he writes, There is otherwise every security, internal and external, that we possess a text the same as that which Muhammad himself gave forth and used. It should be remembered that Sir William Muir is not from among the friends of Islam. Rather, on a countless occasions, he has made grave attacks upon Islam and the founder of Islam. The Quran, however, is such lofty grandeur as cannot be tainted by the prejudice of a single person. 
Noldik, who was a very renowned German Christian Orientalist and who accepted as an authority in this field, writes that with regards to the Quran, the Quran present today is exactly the same as in the time of the companions of the Prophet. Then he states, all efforts of European scholars to prove the existence of latter interpolation in the Quran have failed. This is the testimony of the people of the West as regards to the general authenticity of the Holy Quran. However, particularly from a historical perspective, Sir William Muir writes, The Quran becomes the groundwork and the test of all inquiries into the origin of Islam and the character of its founder. Then he states, of Muhammad's biography, the Quran is the keystone. Then Professor Nicholson, who is a Christian British Orientalist and his book, Literary History of the Arabs, has been widely published and introduced rights in his book. Here we have materials of unique and incontestable authority for tracing the origin and early development of Islam. Such materials as do not exist in the case of Buddhism or Christianity or any other ancient religion. Therefore, the Holy Quran is a completely honest and most authentic record of early Islamic history, and it possesses a rank which is not enjoyed by Hadith or history. Thus, when the Holy Quran very clearly and invariably states in this verse, which was the first to be revealed allowing jihad by the sword, that it was the disbelievers who were the instigators and the Muslims only took up the sword in self-defense to search for evidence of Muslim instigation through flimsy and weak argumentation cannot be considered an honest deed.